Hello, I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And I'm Dr. Akiva Daum. And, and welcome, welcome to Interesting, Interesting Questions. I am a rabbi with ordination from Yeshiva University and a doctorate in education. I have a medical degree with specialization in general and addiction psychiatry. In this podcast, we will seek to take different questions that come up in the Torah and evaluate them from a psychological standpoint as well as a religious standpoint. Please note that in many of these situations, we will be looking at things that may be viewed as controversial. It is specifically to bring about questions that many people have had and bring in to light different levels of evaluation and it'll get people to think about things in a different way. All right, welcome to uh, Parshat Ki Teitze. And Avi, I'm going to dive right in. There is, right after we, we read about what to do with the, uh, let's just call it the spoils of war, um, we have a discussion about if a man has two wives and he loves one and he doesn't like the other and they both bear sons, you're not allowed to deny the Bechor, the birthright. And I realize that it is not exactly the same thing. However, we have very clearly in the Torah several times evidence of, okay, the father didn't deny the Bechor, but the mother, in some way or another, was able to essentially have that happen. What am I referring to? Of course, I'm referring to Avraham and Yishmael, um, right? Sarah sent Hagar and Yishmael away, and we know that Yitzchak got the birthright. And then we have, uh, with Yaakov and Esav, we have the birthright, yes, okay, so Esav sold it, but we have also established that maybe you can't sell a birthright. Um, And... I'll take it even a step further, because even beyond that instance, we know that Yaakov did have favorite sons, and they were not the Bechor. And I'm not talking necessarily about the actual inheritance per se, but um, tell us more about this, because we clearly have evidence of the contrary in many ways, in one way actually, in fact, from directly the father, um, so, Avi, please, share some insights. So, as I looked through this week's Parsha, I think I counted at least five, and there are probably more that I missed. Um, halachot, that are listed in this week's Parsha, laws that are listed in this week's Parsha, that are directly contraindicated in comparison to what was done by our avot, by our ancestors. And so you might say, as you asked, isn't this a problem? And my very simple response is going to be, it isn't a problem. Because first of all, every rule has its exception. And second of all, the Torah has to come tell us that this is the rule specifically because our ancestors did this, and we might think that this would be the norm, and rather the Torah has to tell us this is not the norm. This is doing the norm should be something else and when our our ancestors did it that was the exception so for instance if you look at the firstborn's right which you described 
Um, we do have cases where that did not happen, whether it was Yishmael or whether it was Esav, and yet we tell us, no, that's the exception, not the rule. Um, specifically, later, when it talks about Sara'at, it reminds us of what happened to Miriam, that she got Sara'at while they were in the desert for talking Lashon Hara, and so it says, you should not do that, right? There was the idea of... Um, of being a harlot, and the idea that that you, one should not be a, a harlot, should not be a prostitute, and yet we see that that was what Tamar portrayed herself as, so that she would be able to fulfill the Leverite marriage. Right. So we see a whole slew of examples in this parsha of things that our ancestors did that is not what we should do. Uh, there was another reference to the idea of how you should treat a slave. Um, and you should not sell your brother, which can refer back to Yosef and, and his brothers. And so there's all of these pieces of what we should not do or should do that is contrary to what was done by the Avot. To help us understand that was the exception, these are the rules. So Akiva, as we look at the very beginning of the Parsha, it talks about the woman that uh, is captured in war and that the man decides to take her as his wife. Then we talk about the man who has two wives, the one that he loves and the one that he hates, and the possibility that the one he hates has the oldest child. And... Then we talk about the wayward and rebellious son. And there seems to be a connection in the sense that it goes from, uh, it is possible that the husband who wanted this wife because he had a deep-seated physical need for her, once he had her, now hates that fact and has remarried. Um, he ended up having a child with her and, and now resents that child because he is a reminder of, the, uh, of that relationship. Um, and unfortunately, while we've moved away from the idea of capturing women in war, fortunately, we have not <laughs> moved away from the idea that sometimes people have relationships that they regret and that they then see the children of those relationships as reminders of the relationship. Um, and so if we take that all the way down the line to this child that the parent resents for whatever reason, or we could also look at it as a child who is acting out because we know the Ben Sorer Umore was somebody who was antisocial and was gluttonous and a drunkard. Um, at what point should parents be giving up on their child if ever. So, Avi, that was an interesting connection of a lot of different things, and um, just as a as a forecasting of what's to come, uh, I do intend to ask if we have an idea of why things are in the connection the way they are, because I think this parsha is ripe with those very seemingly tangential connections and sometimes seemingly, uh, as we would call it, uh, derailment, where it, don't even know how you got to that train track. 
So anyway, we're going to get back to that. Um, but to answer your question of basically, if I understood you correctly, more or less, at what point can we give up and lose hope in our offspring, uh, such that we are ready to have them put to death, uh, as the Torah you know, says is okay, even though we, we do know that this was never enacted. And I think that there's an important meaning behind that. I think there's a lot of times where the Torah does a really amazing job at reminding us of our humanity. It reminds us that we are flawed. It reminds us that we become overwhelmed, that we become frustrated, that we, quite frankly, completely screw up. The, the Torah is filled with fantastic examples of not only other people, but our own people screwing up repeatedly. And several times when God said, I'm going to wipe you all out. And he doesn't. He does once. We know he does once. It says that. And yet, after that, there's a promise made. And in some ways, one could say, you know, here we are in Elul. And Elul, we, of course, every day we know we're supposed to do tshuva. Yet, Elul is, of course, thought of as our month of tshuva. Perhaps, this is a reminder that even HaKadosh Baruch Hu, in, in his infinite, infinite everything, sees, I don't like what I did. If he, if he was so, if he was so quick to say, I will never wipe the world away again, clearly there's an acknowledgement that that was not the thing to do. And I think in this particular place, it says, you might be thinking that this is where you're at. And if we think back and we remember to Parshat Noah, we can say, even HaKadosh Baruch Hu was there sometime. And when that happened, he was not okay with it. So much so that he said, I'll never do that again. And so I think we can use that as a strength to say, sometimes you are so frustrated, you are ready to give up, you are ready to say, I'm done, I can't handle this anymore, get rid of this kid. And the truth is, is that's not an option. And we know that that's not something that we ever really want to do. So I suppose the next piece is how do we handle that? How do we get through that? There's a lot of great important ways to do that because anyone with children will know that those children are really good at doing things that are wonderful and sweet and amazing. And those same wonderful, sweet, amazing children are really good at being complete terrors uh, and nightmares beyond what we could possibly ever have imagined. So I think in times of this, part of what's important to do is remember sometimes you need to take a step back. You need to take a pause. You need to give yourself a timeout. Because as adults, we still need timeouts. And having that opportunity to think through what we're going to do and what we're going to say and consider the ramifications of that can be an opportunity to change the course and change the path and direction that both the parent and the child are headed in. So that's first and foremost. Another thing is self-care. We always think of self-care, and I think I've said this before. I know I talk about this all the time with my patients and with everyone, quite frankly. Self-care is paramount, and it is very necessary 
no matter how much time you think you don't have, five minutes, that's fine. That's something. That's enough to be able to get a reset. That's enough to be able to do something for yourself to know that you still are important and therefore are rejuvenated to handle perhaps those very difficult situations where you might say, if there were only elders in this city, I would know what to do, which would not happen. So it's an opportunity to, again, think and take a pause. And so what I tell people also is, is if you're going to think of something as a punishment, make sure that it's a punishment. Make sure it's a boundary that you are willing to set. Because the, the quintessential example of this uh, nowadays is, I can't handle my kid, their behavior. Unfortunately, in many cases, my, you know, my, my specialty, my subspecialty is addiction treatment. And so patients who struggle with addiction, their family sometimes says, that's it, I'm cutting them off, I'm done, I'm not dealing with them anymore. And we know that that's not necessarily what needs to be done. Now, setting boundaries, absolutely. You set boundaries, and you set boundaries that you're willing to keep. Otherwise, just like when the child is five and says, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this, and then eventually you say, okay, fine, you don't have to do it. What happens? The child learns that they can push that boundary forever. So this is the same idea. You want to set a boundary that you know how to keep. And so if your boundary is you cannot use, for example, in my presence or in my home, okay, that's a boundary. And if that boundary is violated, then the repercussion needs to be discussed and should be even laid out beforehand. If, the, if you're going to use in my house, you will not be welcome in my house. If you're going to use in my presence, you cannot be in my presence. And it's not a... I never want to be around you and I never want to see you. It's say, this is the parameter, this is the discussion, and this is what is set. So I always encourage people, if you're setting boundaries, set a boundary that you can keep. And so... So as I alluded to before in my previous answer, uh, yeah, I'd love for you to go over a little bit more about the order of these laws and kind of talk a little bit more about how they came up with that order, please. So Avi, as I alluded to before uh, in my answer, I, I'd really like for you to kind of go over a little bit more uh, the specifics on the order of the way things are set up. I think it's very clear that this Parsha overall continues with the um, ways in which we should treat others, both human and non-human, common decency. And I think, actually, I would dare say that this is more of a code of ethics, right? We have the religious law, we have the law law, and then this Parsha really goes into what is ethical treatment, which is not necessarily to say law in the same way, and I think we can even talk further about the difference, if there is or if there should be, between morals, ethics, and law. And uh, suffice it to say, I first would like to kind of ask you, the order in which we have these, these statements, they sometimes there's a natural progression, and sometimes there's something really unusual thrown in the middle. So, in the Torah, we have a concept called smichut parshiot, the idea that when ideas are put next to each other, 
there is a relationship between them. And in this case, I think there's both a macro and a micro. So if we're looking at the macro, I want to go all the way back to Parshat Re'eh, where we talked about social contract with God. And Parshat Re'eh is really about the relationship that each person should have with God, recognizing that that plays itself out also sometimes in the relationship that we have with other people. Then we go to Parshat Shoftim. Parshat Shoftim is the relationship with society. Right? It's the bigger sort of, uh, uh, what do I do if I need to sue somebody? Or what do I do if, if you know, my responsibility is in the public forum? Here we get into personal and private relationships. And so Parshat Kitetse really deals with the relationship I have with individuals. That's sort of the macro. To go into the micro, I think that there are components, as I alluded to before. I think when it talks about right, going out to war and taking a, a trophy wife, literally in this case, um, it, it then is a very real possibility that recognizing that this was the case, you may come to hate her. Um, and therefore you then have a child with her and dislike that child because it is a reminder of that previous relationship. And here too, then that lesson leads to um, the child rebelling against you because of the way you've treated him. And so we can sort of see, right? And then it goes on to the idea of hanging because that's what we would have done to the rebellious son. So we talk about we talk about how one should be treated when they are dead. Right? Um, but it goes into the property of others. It goes into males and females and their relationships. Um, and so it's not surprising to me that when the rabbis were looking for organizational structures for the sets of halachot, they took these structures as well. So if we look at the Arba Turim, the, one of the first codifications of Jewish law after the Gemara, they really split it into four parts. One part deals with holidays and relationship with God. One part deals with family law. One part deals with, with uh, uh, secular law, torts and things like that. Um, and so here it, it parallels that and was probably those, those topics were probably taken from here in terms of each and every one it isn't unusual that when we look at lists of laws right, the, the connection between everyone isn't immediately obvious but at the same time, I think if we sat down and we thought about the overarching theme and either larger categories or minor categories, we could find a connection between them. Um, so for instance, when we talk about forbidden and restricted marriages, and then it goes on to talking about the sanctity of the camp and escaped slaves and sexual purity, that might all seem to be random 
at its surface, but if we think about it in terms of the idea that um, these forbidden and restricted marriages may come from right, the idea of an escaped slave or may be connected to somebody who was living outside of the camp, right, and that sexual purity is one of those things that might push you to be outside of the camp, right, all of those pieces can be seen to be connected if we take them one at a time. So in the past several weeks, we've read about how we should have our relationship with Hashem, how we should have our relationship within the community, how we should have our relationship with individuals, be they human or animal. And we end, Kitetse, with remembering Amalek, which, as we've discussed before, Avi, is really almost the quintessential how you don't treat other people, right? And we, we discussed about whether Amalek was a nation or whether Amalek was an idea. So my question for everybody for their Shabbos table is, we have all these laws and all of these rules and all of these uh, codes of how we should treat everyone and how we should expect to be treated, how our relationships should be. And we have the, at that time, representation of what the antithesis of that was. Do we have any of that now? And if so, how can we remember that this is Amalek and how can we blot it out? Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding. You know, Avi, a lot of us have really interesting and old family heirlooms and things that we save and things that we store. And, you know, every once in a while you come across something and you say, why'd we save this? Well, Avi, in this week's Parsha, it specifically talks about saving the proof of your daughter's virginity. Why don't you talk to us about why the Torah thinks this is important? No, no, I don't think I will. <laughs>